You're listening to United and Resilient, a podcast designed to help heal and support the El Paso community. Hello, I'm your host, Mariana Sierra, Outreach Coordinator for the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center, a program of United Way of El Paso County. We are dedicated to serve those who were impacted directly or indirectly by August 3rd. Join us on the journey to long-term recovery as we have honest conversations with local leaders, mental health specialists, and fellow El Pasoans who share their stories and expertise. We feature topics that influence and impact the vitality and resilience of our community. We are El Paso United, and together we heal. Juntos sanamos. Dear listener, before we begin, a note of warning. The topic we're about to explore contains a mention of the mass casualty event and a description of the events that unfolded thereafter. This episode may not be suitable for everyone. Please note that any views or opinions shared in this program are personal and belong solely to the individual and do not represent the United Way of El Paso County or the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center. Any views stated are not meant to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hello, welcome back to United and Resilient. As we hit the one-year mark of August 3rd, we wanted El Pasoans to know that the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center is here to support the community during these difficult times. Through this episode, we talked to Mayor DeMargo and County Judge Samaniego, two amazing local leaders who reflect on a day that is now part of our history. We discussed the impact this tragedy had in our community and how they were able to process everything as leaders, but most importantly, as El Pasoans. Joining me, we have the Honorable Mayor DeMargo. Mayor, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Mariana. I want to go ahead and start by asking, tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to this leadership position. Well, it was not something I ever planned or expected. Um, My family is originally from the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. My grandfather was the first to speak, uh, first spoke English at age 18 when he went to the University of Texas. Galveston Medical School. And after medical school, he decided to leave the Rio Grande Valley, Rio Grande City to be exact, and moved to Oklahoma City where he uh, set up an orthopedic surgery practice. And that's where my dad was born and I was born. But the bulk of his family and and my relatives are still in the Rio Grande Valley area. Um, My dad was kind of a, a vagabond, I guess you'd say, changed jobs and Sometimes the jobs left him, but we moved every three years virtually growing up. So I lived all over the South and the Southeast. Um, I went to, uh, ended up in high school in Huntsville, Alabama, and I was just fortunate enough to play on a very good high school football team. And as a result, I ended up with a football scholarship to Vanderbilt University, which at the time, and talking about career paths, I thought I wanted to be a a physician, and I started out in pre-med and was in pre-med about a year and a half until I met chemistry and was defeated. Um, but uh, while there, I met a young lady on a blind date my senior year um, named Adair Wakefield, and she was from El Paso. 
and I was rather smitten. And uh, I chased her for three years. We were married on August the 21st. We're approaching our 44th anniversary. And uh, we moved to El Paso where I joined her father in business in an insurance business. And so basically I was just in business for many, many years and never ever expected to get into uh, the political arena. I was always a supporter of, of uh, candidates financially and uh, uh, otherwise, but I never ever expected to be in politics. And after I served as uh, chairman of the greater of the uh, El Paso Chamber of Commerce, in 2005, I observed what I thought was very poor representation in our state legislature by those that were representing us from, from El Paso. And I said, what have I got to lose? Let me go run for it. So I ran for office and I lost. I ran again and I lost. And then I ran a third time and I won. I served a term in the House of uh, Representatives. And then after I lost re-election after that in 2012, the, uh, I was contacted by the Commissioner of Education at the time, Michael Williams, and I was asked to uh, become a part of the Board of Managers. There were five of us total and be chairman of that or president of the Board of Managers to do what amounted to uh, a business turnaround of EPISD given what had transpired under under the former superintendent. So I did that for two years, and then people started asking me about uh, running for mayor. After the EPISD and the board of managers, I did decide to run for mayor and was fortunate enough to be elected in 2017. And that's the long and the short of it. That's the long and the short of it. And the last time we spoke, you said something that I found really poetic and really beautiful, that it was that you found roots in El Paso. And I thought that was so beautiful. Can you um, elaborate a little bit on that? Well, as I said, my dad was kind of a vagabond. I, I lived in Ardmore, Oklahoma until I was three years old, Midland, Texas, till I was nine, Jackson, Mississippi, till I was 12, Dallas, till I was 15. And I said, we moved, moved to Huntsville, Alabama for high school. And I hated moving all those times. And if I hadn't been in sports, I'm not sure what would have happened. That was the only way I could kind of make friends and get involved. But I always said I never, when I graduated from college, I said I want to be able to pick a place irrespective of the job, that I wasn't going to allow the position of the job. And I had no employment at that time, so I was kind of dreaming. But that uh, – that, uh, that I wanted roots. I, I wanted something permanent. And when after marrying Adair and then her dad talking to me about joining him in their in, in the insurance business in El Paso, um, I said to her, I want to move. We were living in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'd started out in the insurance business when I graduated from college in 1974. And then Adair and I married in 76. And uh, I will tell you at first, and she's a third generation El Paso, and she didn't want to come back. And I said, <laughs> I said, I think it's a great opportunity. I'll tell you right now, you can't pry either one of us from here. But uh, uh, El Paso did. It gave me roots. And uh, it's just a special place. And, and uh, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> El Paso is home, right? Um, I... I had the opportunity to travel a little bit during college years um, for internships and stuff like that. But there's nothing like El Paso. 
my beautiful frontera. There's something so beautiful about it. And you're now recognizing that El Paso is so unique geographically, culturally, and such. What does being a leader of El Paso mean to you? Well, it means... I mean, it means the obligation to present our city in a way that most people are unaware of. Um, the biggest challenge I've found as mayor is that we are just an unknown jewel. Yeah. People are unaware that we're the largest U.S. city on the Mexican border. They're unaware that that uh, that Juarez next door, it's, it's almost just across the street for all intents and purposes. It's not like Tijuana and San Diego, which is a 15-mile difference. It's longer, uh, yeah. We are we are here on the border, and we've been one region for over 350 years. And people just don't understand that, you know, we were actually here 100 years before the United States was ever founded, and we are truly the largest bilingual, binational, bicultural region in the Western Hemisphere. And we're about 2.7 million people with an average age of somewhere between 31 and 32. I mentioned this in our first episode uh, with our CEO and our VP for Community Impact. And whenever I leave town and they ask me where I'm from, and I sell El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, and they have a lot of questions, right? Like. How is this culture thing going on in your city? And is it really right next to Mexico? And I'm like, yes. And I try to explain, right, to explain our culture and how we work as a, as a community, as our sister cities. But in reality, when I try to explain and find a decent description of what El Paso and Ciudad Juarez is, I can't because it's so unique. And I always tell them, you know, you have to visit. And you have to be there by the border and see how Mexico is right next to you and intake all that force and all that strength and see how in five minutes you can be in another country. And that's when you understand. And I, I saw in prep for this interview, I, I came across um, a wonderful speech you gave and you said that there are families in both cities. So it's it's just wonderful and it's beautiful. And once you leave La Frontera, you leave and you realize, wow, we're so unique. And like you said, we are an unknown jewel. And I love that you mentioned that. Um, now, what have been some of the biggest challenges of being major of our community? Well, outside of navigating the, the crises that we've been handed over the last uh, year and a half and those challenges, um, and one thing about those, especially on the immigration one, I'd have you know, news media from all over the world literally come to El Paso to, to see about the migration or the, 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 the immigrants coming across and seeking asylum or, or a better life. Uh, and, and they would ask me to describe El Paso, and I'd give them all the demographics and the time zone differences. From, you know, we have our own time zone. Yeah. <laughs> and all of that and explain what we're we're a high desert that we're almost 4,000 feet above sea level. And, and, uh, you know, we get eight inches of rain a year and all that. People, they have no idea. They have no idea that we're, uh, you know, that our County has a population of probably 850,000. Uh, there's about, there's over 650 in the city itself. And we're like the 20th largest city in the United States. And, the, and, and most 
don't understand that. They think we're some kind of dusty little community where people still have horses. And, you know, and I said, I, so I explained everything to him and I'll never forget. I was explaining it to one of the, one of the news anchors for a, for a, uh, uh, cable news channel. And I said, irrespective of what I've told you, you won't figure it out. You won't get it until you come here. Yes, exactly. When she did and interviewed me here, I asked her point blank, was I right? And she said, you were absolutely correct. And that's just, you know, that's part of what makes us unique. Now, I want to go now into August 3rd. Um, one of the things that we do here in this podcast is, of course, provide education and tools for our community to promote long-term recovery. But I also love that side of storytelling. And we want to know your side of the story of what happened on August 3rd. I, I was at um, a luncheon before the pandemic happened and you shared, and I was in the audience and you shared that you were in Austin when you got that call. So could you recall that moment with us? I was on a member of a organization. I was a board member and we were having a board meeting in, in, uh, in Austin and the board meeting had finished at about 1130 Austin time on Saturday, August 3rd. And so I was uh, preparing to leave Austin, but before I left and my flight wasn't until 6 p.m. that night, I started getting E911 notices on my phone. And it was about a shooting, about a Walmart, but it wasn't clear. At first it said uh, there's been a shooting, but but there'd been no, uh, no injuries. No one was been hurt. And then there were uh, notices that said maybe multiple shooters. And I'm calling the city manager to find out. It was no one had good information at that time. And uh, what, what listeners need to understand that the first call to 911 went out at 1039 that morning. And at, at uh, 1045, the police entered the Walmart, not knowing a six year veteran, and a uh, rookie one one day off his probation entered that Walmart. True heroes, not knowing that the, the shooter was not there. And then at 11.06, that uh, evil white supremacist um, murderer was, was apprehended by two motorcycle policemen, EPA, El Paso Police Department motorcycle policemen, and... Uh, and two DPS agents. And uh, I mean, it was, uh, to me, they were the true heroes. They went in. Everybody responded. But I'm in Austin and I'm, I'm getting these and I, I drive over to, to, a, to a former staffer I had in Austin who uh, had just had a baby and I wanted to visit, with, meet the baby and then leave Austin. So I got over there and his, his, uh, his, his television was on the national news showing live pictures of the Walmart and what was going on. And I look at that, I start seeing my phone going off again and I go, I got to get home. And as I said, my flight wasn't due out till 6 PM that night. And I told him, I said, I can't wait. Well, he had this, he had the ability to get me a plane. And so we rushed to the airport to take a private plane from uh, Austin to El Paso uh, on the way to the airport, the governor calls me 
he's been alerted and he asked me, he heard I was in Austin and he wanted to know if I wanted a ride with him. And I told him, no, sir, I, I'm on my way. I'm, a, I'm too far along. I'm on my way to the airport. I've got a ride. I'll meet you in El Paso. And so I, I remember getting calls from national media. I think CNN was calling me and I'm about to board the plane. And my last information was there may be multiple shooters. We didn't know what. It's the fog of, of, of the, the moment and the tragedy. And so I board the plane. I remember answering the CNN reporter uh, who I remember is Wolf Blitzer. And I, he asked me about it. And I, I said, this is all I know. I'm on my way to El Paso. So I board the plane, and for an hour and a half, I have no internet or no no uh, connection. So, frankly, all I do is look out the window and pray. Because I couldn't do anything else. So we landed about 1.30, and my dictator detail met me, and uh, I go to the 911 center, the fusion center, and then I have the briefings by the police department the FBI, the Department of Justice, Texas Department of Public Safety. I see the, the missive, the so-called manifesto by the shooter. I read that, and, and, uh, and it's, uh, I'm, just, I'm just upset. And then I, uh, the governor and I do, he arrives, he gets briefed. And then we do a joint press conference that was uh, shared with everybody. And then I go, uh, we set up EPISD, did a great job, along with, you know, Red Cross, United Way, Salvation Army, everybody. They go to MacArthur School to set up a, uh, a point for receiving the uh, families for notification purposes. And uh, so I go over there to to see the to see the families and greet them and that was tough and they're being notified as they as they process the the crime scene of their uh, loved ones who have been uh, and knew about the injuries injured already remember there were 46 people shot and 23 died and uh, so they're notified and and I'm visiting with them and I, I it was tough. It's still tough. And that's that's what we're trying to do here. Um, even though it's been a year, people think, oh, it's been a year. We're fine now. But really, um, it's okay to not be okay. And I thank you for sharing that story because I know that um, as a resident and as a citizen, you look up to your leaders, right? And as as I was watching this, I look up to you and I saw your strength. But then I also wondered, my goodness, like, here's our leader. And uh, like, if I'm devastated, I couldn't even imagine, like, what were you feeling? Um, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about the plane because that was, I was always wondering what was going through your mind in the plane. Um, and there were so many media coverage, right? Like you mentioned right now, CNN, one of the biggest um, um, news out, outlets out there. But when you came home after doing all those press briefings and after doing all those interviews and talking to their families, you come home to your bedroom, to your wife. Um, what's going through your mind at that moment? Well, to be honest, I was partially numb. I mean, we're working on adrenaline. I don't remember sleeping that first night at all. 
I got up the next morning and went back to the fusion center for updates and, and you know, where were we? And, and, uh, you know, we were still tallying how many were hurt, where they were and which hospitals, how severe, uh, they were still processing the victims and notifying family members. It was, it was a semi blur. I just remember going back. I think we did another press briefing to make sure people understood where we were at that time and what was going on. I remember Nan Whaley, the mayor of Dayton, Ohio called me. I mean, and she had had that very night, a shooting with nine people killed. She's a friend and I know her through the U S conference of mayors and and I said, she called me to console me. And I said, man, I need to console you too. And uh, so we, we commiserate a little bit. Um, but uh, I've been, uh, Senator, uh, you know, other elected officials were coming in. Senator Cornyn came in. And uh, I joined him in going to uh, UMC, the hospital, to visit some of the victims and their families. And uh, so one of the rooms I'm going to is the is the room where that at that time, the uh, 10 week old little boy was there whose parents had both perished. But it hadn't been official. Only the mother had been officially had been officially identified and the family notified. So I'm in there with the two sets of grandparents. And it turns out the 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 husband's father, the grandfather, had a um, had an uncle who used to work for me in my insurance company, and so he, we we had mutual things. But while I'm standing there and talking to the family, and and uh, and, the, and the grandparents are holding the baby, um, he gets the call notifying him of his. So he, he's he's notified officially of his son's passing and has to go to actually told he needs to go to MacArthur so that they could form my telly. And then I remember we left and I went to uh, Time uh, United Blood Services. We want to get blood. And I go there and, you know, it's 100 degrees out on August the 3rd. And there there's a line all the way around. Yes. And we walk in there, and uh, after people give, cheers go up. And and I think what a what a contract, what a dichotomy to go from the hospital room with a ten week old little boy who just lost his parents, with the grandparents who were just notified, to a blood bank in which. El Pasoans are standing out in the heat for hours to give blood. And I said, that's what we're about as a community. And that's what uh, makes us uh, so different and special. Yes. It was very overwhelming. I was there at the, at the blood bank and it was, my gosh, like you said, it was such a big contrast of going on scene and then seeing the community. And then at that moment, you you realize this didn't come from us. Like we didn't do this to our own community because this is our community, this line of people. And I remember I saw the guy who was delivering pizzas for people who were waiting outside, people bringing water bottles to people who were because of the heat, like you mentioned. Um, and there was, was a truck out there doing snow cones. Oh, yeah. 
had I had I had one with him, but you know, I said it to the media from day one. This individual, this evil, hate-filled white supremacist, had to come from seven hundred miles away. That I'm convinced that would have never happened with anybody from our borderplex region. It's just not what we're about. And I'll tell you, the media that whole week following when I had to do interviews every single day and they're camped out in the parking lot above the, the, uh, the Walmart interviewing all they could tell me before and after an interview was they could not believe how gracious and hospitable and sweet and kind our people are. They were they were blown away. I'm talking about these all these New York or Washington D.C. or all these big reporters. That's they, every one of them said that to me, which is again I think a reflection of who we are and why we will not let this hate-filled individual dominate us. It will be part of our history, but it will not define us. And uh, and and that's what I take. Uh, it just you know it gave us a chance, in spite of the tragedy, to reveal who we are and what we're about as a community. I love that. Um, right now, you mentioned that you called the mayor of Dayton. Um, and I'm wondering, where does one look for guidance in leading a community during during something like this? Um, did you make any connections to other cities that have gone through something similar? Yes, I did. And the governor provided me with with uh, some tremendous advice. I mean, up until that time, he'd been, we were the third tragic shooting he'd had to deal with. Sutherland Springs and uh, and the one outside of Houston and uh, the church, the Sutherland Springs Church and Allison. And he gave me some insight as to what to do to, to help the families and expedite things so that they could get their loved ones back and, and, uh, and funerals held to begin the process of of, of healing. Um, and, and I had calls from Orlando, Florida, from, from you name it, everybody that's been, and I've been on some panels with, with the mayors from, uh, Parkland, Parkland, uh, Florida, uh, uh, Orlando, uh, San Jose, California, Pittsburgh, you name it, all that had gone through in some form, some kind of tragedy, uh, similar to two hours. So we've done that. But I got to tell you, the overarching place I went for support was prayer. I love that. I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't have made it without a, without a foundation. I love that. And I love that you're sharing that with us, because I know a lot of people who are listening find a lot of strength in, in, in prayer and in religion. Um, and thank you so much for for your vulnerability. I I know it's it's difficult to recall what happened a year ago. Um, so now, what are the next steps that are being taken to ensure the safety of our community? Well, we before and even after we, we we've been ranked as one of the safest cities in the nation, and uh, our crime rate this year is even down three percent over last year. Um, so, I mean, I attribute that to the, to the, to the leadership of our police department and, and uh, our first responders and, and uh, the, the police we have who are committed. You know, the unique thing about El Paso is we have so many multi-generational families here. People who, 
like you may go away and then want to come back. Mm -hmm. And uh, my uh, my youngest son went away and came back. And uh, there's just something special about this region and our community that that's it's hard to define. And uh, but but that also is the same caliber of individual that makes up our police department, our fire department, our first responders. They're committed, committed and care about this, this, this community. And I think, I think we are as, as we are one of the safest cities anywhere and will continue to be based on that leadership. So I don't have any concerns about that. This is, you can tell us, I took, I took August 3rd personally. It was a personal attack to me and I can't, I can't let go of that yet. Um, Sure will, but, but uh, uh, I think I'm going through the same kind of grieving process most everybody else is. But uh, I just I'm not going to let this happen to our city, I'm, our community, our region. Uh, no, we are not going to be defined by this. And I think that was the biggest part uh, part for me too, that I felt this so personal because of who I am, because I'm Mexican-American. I've never felt so unsafe by being just me. So that's why it was so hard to process. And that leads me to my next question. I know you mentioned prayer, but the emotional toll of leading a community through this can be difficult. Um, how have you been able to take care of your mental health? Um, and you mentioned right now that it's something that you can let go. So how are you making sure that you're addressing those emotions? Well, there are times, as you can tell, when I break down that I'm probably not really addressing it as well as I probably should. But uh, my faith is, is pretty, uh, pretty strong. And, uh, and I, I, uh, I do several Bible devotionals per day and I pray per day and I pray for this city and uh, I pray for wisdom and discernment and uh, so that's really it that's what keeps me going I mean um, it keeps things in perspective keep things in balance and uh, I you know I everything I mean marriage work, you name it, it keeps it in balance for me. And this has been going on. I made a change in my life when I was in college. And, and uh, I've tried to adhere to that since since my junior year in college. And so I just have a regular uh, daily ritual of a quiet time in the morning when I read the Bible and I pray. I love that. I love that. I'm a, uh, I also find a lot of strength in religion. I'm a very religious person, a very spiritual person. Um, but I also find that crying is good. Well, sometimes you can't help it. Yeah. But I just, I've been praying about it and seeking help. So now my concluding, my two concluding questions would be, what does the road ahead look like for El Paso? You know, as we talk about the fact that we've been here for 350 years, over 350 years as a region, and 100 years before the United States was ever founded. During that time, our culture, our region, our people have withstood, withstood revolutions, wars, 
we are we are a, a strong surviving population of, of, with roots that are uh, uh, that are unique. I mean, I, the, the quality character of the people of our region is is is, is phenomenal. There, I, I don't know that in, in moving around and traveling, I've ever met any 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 people any groups from around the world that, that, that measure up to what we have here. So I think we have a resilience kind of embedded into our, our genes that, yeah. that others don't have. And then the fact that we've got, you know, typically unlike a lot of areas, we, we're not really a transient population. People want to stay here. They want to stay with their families. And we have, you know, we'll have not just two generations, we'll have three generations. In some cases, four generations of families living, uh, you know, nearby and if not necessarily in the same home, but, 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 you know, we're together. We have a connection with families. The size of our families is larger than most demographic statistics, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, that was what was tough on the, on the, on the COVID stuff is limiting gatherings to 10 when typically you got families that are bigger than 10. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, that's that's just, you know, that's kind of who we are and what makes us, to me, unique and special. So I have no doubt about our ability to uh, withstand this and move forward. Thank you so much for your answer. And now um, you mentioned right now that it seems that resiliency is engraved in our veins. Um, what does resiliency mean to you? The ability to put things in perspective, to understand that, that uh the burdens don't have to be taken on all by yourself, uh, and that there are there are ways to deal with those challenges, and, and the sun will come up tomorrow. That 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 not every day is going to be like the day that you may be be experiencing the most uh, challenges. That there will that things will get better. That there is a hope, and uh, we need to keep focusing on that. So. I think that's what keeps me going. I mean, I kind of think back and I think to myself, I'm, I'm blessed to be here, but this isn't heaven. And now my last question would be, what is the message of hope you would like to give to our community? That that I kind of alluded to a while ago that uh, just, you know, we've been there, done that. We, we've survived other things, other tragedies, other uh other uh, challenges, and we will continue to survive as a community. And uh, we have a, uh, you know, our our uniqueness is in our culture and our commitment and our character, and that that will sustain us. And the fact that I think, I don't know of a more loving community that cares more about their fellow man than El Paso. I mean, I was called last week by the New York Times to tell me that we were ranked one of the cities that most wears uh, face coverings. And, uh, and, I, and I was kind of surprised. Well, I said, I appreciate that. I, they, they call it Friday. And the, the, the point I'm making is, I said, you know, if you think about it, it doesn't change. But we, have, we care about each other. We have a caring community. And uh, uh, it just, it's just kind of the, the nature and culture of our, of our region and, and, and in our binational, bicultural uh, world, uh, so I think I think I think people ought to come here and learn how to live, 
And uh, I mean, think about think about it. We have because of immigration back in the in the twenties and the thirties, we were like an Ellis Island, uh, and that's why we have we have Syrians, we have Lebanese, we have we have we have a mixed culture, uh, and they all grow up together. Uh, yeah. My wife and dad would talk about eating matzo balls at one family, and then and then Greek food at another, and the Syrian. You know, I mean, it's just it, we are a blended community, a blended culture. And I honestly don't, we're not segregated. We're all in this. We all live together. We're all, we don't have neighborhoods that say, well, they're of this distinction or that distinction or what. We don't do that. We all want, you know, and that's, and I think that's what makes us exceptional. Thank you. I love that. We are one. And I just, I just really loved your, my time with you, Mayor. I cannot be more thankful and thank you for being so vulnerable with us. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is United and Resilient. We'll be right back. My name is Jorge Rodriguez. I am the Emergency Management Coordinator for the El Paso City County Office of Emergency Management and Assistant Fire Chief. Where was I on August the 3rd? August the 3rd began like most of my Saturdays. I had arrived from the gym and was making breakfast for my wife when I received the first message from our 911 communication center that read, Active Shooter, Walmart, 7101 Gateway West. Merely, I assumed it was an isolated incident, but within minutes I read the second message, which read, Shooter with an AK-47, several dead. I turned to my wife and said that this was the real thing and that I wasn't sure when I would return home. I paused, took a deep breath, because I knew that we were in for a marathon. I immediately called upon to activate the EOC and began prioritizing. I had a 20-minute drive over Transmount to the EOC, during which messages continued to pour in from the 911 Communication Center, the media, and other sources. Much of it, we later learned, was misinformation and incomplete. Although at the time, difficult decisions needed to be made, with the information provided, such as there being multiple shooters at different locations from Costco to Slovis the Mall. Upon my arrival to the EOC, several agencies were already in the ground and operating. Walking into the EOC is a moment I won't forget. Looking up overhead at our giant screens and seeing our safe and beautiful city across all the major news networks with the headline that read, Active Shooter, Mass Shooting in El Paso. Within one hour of our initial shots fired, Hundreds of brave first responders were on the scene, and EOC staff began coordinating critical information and resources. On learning the shooter had been apprehended and much of the misinformation had been cleared, we began working on the consequence management aspects of this incident, which was immense. Basically providing a point of reunification for loved ones of those impacted by the shooting was a top priority, as well as deploying mental health resources in the community. By 5 p.m., Governor Abbott was in our EOC and we held our first of many national press conferences. Over the course of the next 12 days that the EOC was activated, we worked with our community partners to establish a family assistance center at the convention center that served over 700 individuals and their families. And concurrently, we planned with our public safety agencies for both the presidential visit and a large vigil held at our downtown ballpark. Throughout the first 12 days, the question remained in my mind as to what the long-term recovery from this incident would look like. With emergency management colleagues from Las Vegas and other jurisdictions that had suffered through their own mass shootings, 
began to develop a victim-centered long-term recovery and resiliency framework that helped coordinate our efforts for the Victims Fund, first responder support, meeting mental health needs, management of the temporary memorial, and most importantly, the creation of a family resiliency center. Partnering with the El Paso chapter of the United Way under the leadership of Deborah Zuluaga and Christina Lamour, the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center was born, which to this day continues to provide opportunities and resources for our community to heal. The pain and fear in everyone's eyes on that day will forever stay with me. But the beauty and kindness displayed by our great city carried many of us to press on with the work that needed to be done. In the end, El Paso's love and compassion resonated across the country and the world. And in the midst of this tragedy, El Paso remained and continues to be united. Now for the second half of this episode, we are joined by our county judge, Ricardo Samaniego. I'm really thankful that you were able to join us today. County judge, welcome to United and Resilient. Well, thank you. It's a great opportunity for all of us to be able to express some of you know, our perceptions of our anniversary coming up and just El Paso in general. Uh, it's just great to, to be able to connect with the community. Yeah, that, that's why we wanted to to do this podcast to connect, to, to connect even more and tell all these important stories from our leaders, from anyone in the community, because we have so many good stories to tell and to learn from. So I would like to start with this question, County Judge. Um, tell me a little bit more about yourself um, and your journey to your current position. Well, you know, very proud of my family is, you know, their roots are extremely deep. I've got uh, actually two great grandfathers that were governors of Chihuahua. And uh, one of them was a Supreme Court justice and uh, uh, Dr. Mariano Salmaniego, very proud. His uh, mural is there at Children's Hospital. So I feel like he's looking out for me. And he's also at the courthouse on the third floor where I'm at. And so it's sort of unique to have your great-grandfather in two murals of two of the most important things that I can think about, the courthouse and, of course, the, the, the hospital. Uh, so then, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest of, of nine. Uh, you know, I'm, most of us went to, to Jefferson High School, except for my oldest brother, who went to Cathedral, because there was no Jefferson at the time. Uh, so grew up in that area, and so obviously by Jefferson and Ari Thomason at the time, and now UMC. Uh, so I, I guess I had some, my life gravitated to that, to that area. So uh, very much, you know, we got, got an, had an opportunity to be very from a sort of a barrio kind of growing up uh, situation. Uh, not all that excited about high school. You know, I thought that if I played football, that was my life. Uh, like my brothers have been extremely uh, notable uh, players uh, in, in, in life and football. And so uh, thought I was going to, you know, sort of I think I'll be, you know, working in other things in the trades or something of that nature. Um, and I just had uh, one mentor that uh, told me either you go register at UTEP or you're fired or register and I'll work around your schedule. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be crazy. I'm not that kind of an academic person. Uh, then my life took off because I got my first bachelor's because of that gentleman, uh, Eddie Abraham. And then I got my master's at uh, UTEP in, in uh, uh, educational psychology. Uh, then I got another sort of combination of cultural 
more of the cultural psychology, uh, bi bilingual, uh, you know, language kind of sort of looking at languages and cultures. I got a master's in that. Uh, then very fortunate that I was able to get a master's in economics at the University of Notre Dame. So had quite a, you know, a different variation uh, that matched uh, that matched my life. My first was Parks and Recreation, and I was the assistant of uh, Parks and Recreation uh, uh, for, for the recreation centers and decided that around that area was mental health and really, really into mental health. Mental health became a big part of my life. Uh, so very excited to, to, to do that. And then from there, I, I realized I wasn't making that much of an impact because you, you see maybe 100, 150 uh, clients a year, if, if that, and went into HR. And in HR, then I was really able to to do some things at a greater scale, which was um, at the Maquiladora. Uh, so, you know, very, very um, type of diverse uh, type of uh, education as well as a very diverse career path uh, I think has been extremely helpful for me. And I love that you mentioned something that you have that mental health background and that psychology background. And it's so interesting because that's what we're trying to do here at United and Resilient and at the El Paso United Family Resiliency Center. We want to advocate for mental health and we want to uh, educate people on why it's important to take care of of their mental health. So it's really interesting that you can bring that inside into, into your current role. Um, so I want to go into my next question. What does being County Judge of El Paso mean to you? Well, it means a great opportunity to do some of the things and continue some of my great grandfather's legacy of wanting to do good and be, you know, public servants. Uh, so a great opportunity uh, it also, as you saw from my education, it, I always got pegged into one or the other. I was regarded as a psychologist or the businessman or, you know, either one or the other. I didn't know where when I thought I was going to retire. I really didn't know what was I going to do with all this preparation that God had got me into. I felt like he had a plan. I just didn't know what the plan was. And when I became county judge, then I realized that almost everything that I did became an element or an opportunity to be able to help the county. And so it's very, just a very a big blessing that when, when I'm at commissioner's court and something comes up, it's sort of pin, I can sort of go back to my own experience and, and not experience from a book, but my actual, like, like it go, it's almost like a file where I could remember what happened, and it brings about a lot of uh, opportunities for me to look at things from a different perspective. So it means a lot. It's a, a huge privilege. Uh, I get up every day wondering what I would have done if I weren't the county judge and what I would have done with all that background and education. Um, you know, maybe I would have volunteered or maybe I would have been uh, on boards and I would have been, but I wouldn't have had such a, an opportunity to, to really capture who I am and the essence of my life to do some things for the El Paso community. It, it really was like a little school, something life was preparing you to be where you're at. So that's, that's something very interesting. And, and, and my initial question, when you were telling me a little bit about your roots and how you grew up in El Paso, so you're a native El Pasoan, born and raised. So what do you love about El Paso? Well, I love that everybody you meet says, where'd you go to high school? <laughs> that is true. 
that's one of the first questions that they do ask you. And I thought it was unique to everybody. No, it's El Paso. We because that's the way we connect. We're, we're the biggest little town in the world. You know, where uh, it takes three three minutes for me to say, "Oh, so you are." La, el primo, el hermano, el cuñado, and then we connect, right? We're, like, we're all, we're connecting with, with them. Uh, and so it's very, very powerful that, that we're able to talk to someone. Uh, I can guarantee you, and then whenever you want to try it, I'll, I'll take you on. We'll go anywhere. Go downtown, and we'll see someone. And before I, I can connect, somehow I know their mother's friend or someone. Very surreal and very beautiful that, that we live in this community, that we know each other, we care about each other. Uh, we're protective of our community. Uh, I respect this community tremendously. I love that. You're right. We're truly all connected somehow. And if not, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out to find a way to be connected. Um, we're very community focused. That's what I see about El Paso. And that's what I love about El Paso. Um, now, Judge, I want to go a little bit into August 3rd, because that's what we, um, the main focus of this episode. Um, so in preparation for this interview, I saw you and the mayor doing a lot of interviews. And um, early on in my interview with him, I, I all I could think about when seeing you guys do those interviews, I was thinking, well, what was going behind what was going behind the scenes? What was going on their heads? So where were you on August 3rd and who gave you that sad news of what would happen? Well, I got a call uh, from the sheriff saying that uh, there was a shooting, that they weren't quite sure, sure what was going on. Uh, but I really, uh, I was somewhere, came home and said, okay, I'm ready. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I have to interact with the community. It's, it's an instinct, especially if you're in mental health. You're trying to figure out how do you minimize any situation. So I didn't know how small, how big it was. I guess about less than 35, 40 minutes, I was at the hospital. And I met up with a, a called Bishop Sites. Well, actually, he called me and said, I'm trying to get in, but they're sort of limiting who goes in and who's not. I said, well, having uh, just a, the church and church members and a faith-based uh, community would be very important. And it was very, very surreal because I felt like someone had, like if you had walked into your house and it had been robbed and you, you get this feeling that, you know, somebody just opened the doors wide open and went in and did what they, they had to do. And so a couple of hours later, I was at the command center and um, reading the manifesto. And as a psychologist or a person who, you know, I dealt a lot with, uh, with these kinds of things, reading letters and so forth to understand the, the mindset of people, um, I was trying to find some insanity. I was trying to find, you know, some insanity in the whole deal, but it, I couldn't find that. I just found a, a rational person making a decision that Mexicans were in the way of progress for the United States. And that we were dangerous people, that we were, you know, taken away from, from Mexico, from, I mean, from the U.S. And, and so you can imagine if your family comes from Mexico and you've got that kind of um, preparation of, of, of those family values and, and being in El Paso, and to read that manifesto was extremely, extremely difficult for me. 
And uh, but I wanted to put on my not my judge hat. Then I found out that MacArthur had been established to to take on the families that they were missing. So when I got there, the, the families were already notified as to who, you know, they knew who had who was out, who wasn't, and then there were names that they didn't know. And so I, I was there with the families with Consulado Mexicano, uh, Ibarra, Mauricio Ibarra, sort of waiting for people to hear that um, whether one of their loved ones had died or not. And so that was really a very tough, tough situation. Uh, during that time, I think I went back to the hospital and I was so impressed with all the doctors wanting to come back on shift and, you know, uh, you know, Jacob Cintron and Cindy Stow telling them not to, you know, we're going to need you more, stay home. No, no, we want to go in. We want to go in. And everybody was trying to be there. By that time, there was water. There was, I mean, people were just pouring in to try to try to help. And then right there, you started feeling like you were, you know, what El Paso is all about. And you got a, a huge sense of what El Paso meant. But one having the psychology of knowing the impact. Yeah, sometimes it's scary when you've been through this because you know, you know, I have to work with so many uh, clients that go through grief. You know, I studied on on the process of of grieving with Kubler Ross. Uh, you know, her you know death and dying, and so you're almost aware of what's going to happen. Uh, and that's pretty hard because you're not only aware that it happened and you're in shock, but you're also aware of what's going to happen later. And uh, from that moment, I just uh, took it on myself that I was going to try to sort of be vigil to the mental health recovery, not of the victims themselves, because they have, you know, people that are helping them directly. But I said, who's going to take care of the evolution of the um, of the community of both Juarez and and so my mind was sort of going ahead of me, trying to figure out what all of these things meant. I do want to ask you something, Judge, if I may. Um, what I'm, I'm so grateful that you have that psychology background and that you want our community to heal. But I think about how the emotional toll of leading a community through this can be very difficult personally. And since this podcast um, advocates for mental health, how do you make sure that you were taking of your mental health at the same time as helping the community to heal? Well, you know, it's interesting, but the fact that you're helping is one of the biggest uh, therapeutic things that anybody can do. The act of helping. They, they have found there's just a psychological, a spiritual kind of connection that when you help someone, you take the attention away from yourself. You take your attention away of your grief. And when you realize other people are grieving and you want to help them, two things happen. One, you help them, but then you also know that you're not the only one going through that because you reach out and then you sense people are hurting just like you are. And you see people interacting and trying to do something about that pain. And, and so it's very, very therapeutic. So very fortunate to be in a position that I can help. I think I've, you know, done more uh, decluttering than I've ever done in my life. And I know that uh, clutter doesn't help me. Like I can't, uh, I can't write as well. I love to write and I'm writing certain things that I want to be able to, to give to the community. And I can't write when, when it's cluttered, when I haven't done 
some of the basic things. And it's my personality is that I'm, I have to have things right for me to be able to sit down and write. Otherwise, I'll be, oh, I haven't done this or I haven't done that. So I'm probably less decluttered and uh, painted the whole inside of my house and, you know, sort of getting ready so that I won't have that barrier. And so, you know, I've gotten back to writing. I've, I think seven or eight times in my life, I actually journaled every single day for a year. And I stopped doing that. And so I started journaling. And we have that in common, actually. I just found out because I'm a big fan of journaling as well. And there are times I love it. I actually have it right here. I'll show you. <laughs> um, I, I I found it so very helpful. And there are some days where I just I just can't. I, I don't feel like it. And I just give myself a little break from it. But then I come back. Um, and it's very, very, very helpful. And I think from what I'm getting from your answer, it's and what I found in my own journey, in my own healing journey, um, is very, it's being very reflective of who you are and getting, I think one of the biggest relationships that you will ever have is with yourself. So listening to what you need. So if what you need, for example, you judge, you need to help people and that's your way of healing. And that's that's your 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 journey, right? And maybe my journey is taking a step back and reflecting a little bit of what happened and taking a note of what happened and just being really in touch with my emotions and my feelings. So really what I want to leave um, that message to our community to just listen to what what they're feeling and what they need. If at that moment they need to go to the healing garden, go to the healing garden. If at that moment they need to talk to a friend or seek a therapist, seek a therapist. So it's really just giving yourself that time to reflect on what are your needs as a human and really, really, really work on that relationship with yourself. That's what I've learned. And that's, I think that's the first step to, to heal. And in um, someone said an unexamined life is a life not worth living. And uh, it's so true because if you're just going through the motions and you're not aware of your situation, when you journal in the morning, what you're going to discover is that you didn't realize what's inside your, your mind and your, and your psyche. You don't know. But when you start writing in the morning, you start realizing, I didn't know I was angry or I didn't know that I felt this way or I didn't know. So it's, it's a way to sort of uncover at the beginning of the day where you're at. But let's say you're a little angry and you didn't know it. You're going to carry that anger through the whole day instead of addressing it through your journaling. So, yeah, that's a it's a very important opportunity. Um, uh, you know, I, I really feel I'm very spiritually based. So I, I feel like God stopped, stopped us for a little while. Yes, I agree. Okay, stop. We need to do the reset button. Like he, he probably said, here's the reset button. But what an opportunity to look at and dust off some of your old dreams. You know, those dreams, I see you know, mental health has a lot to do with what you thought of yourself and what you're, you're, what's happening to you. Uh, one of the things I ask people all the time is to say, who do you, what's the difference between who do you want to become and who are you becoming? That gap is very strong. Who I want to become and who I'm becoming could be going in totally different directions. And the further you move away from who you want to become and you're becoming something else, 
the, the more difficult it is for you to have mental health and feel good about yourself and feel self-confident. And, and so I always tell people, just put it on your desk, you know, just put a little thing that says, you know, who do you want to become, but who are you really becoming? And sometimes as you close the gap, you start feeling better about yourself. And I think right now the world slowed down on us and it's an opportunity to, to get on whatever it is that maybe was too fast for you, maybe it was too confusing. So anyway, some of the things that helped me sort of put my life sort of in order. <laughs> and that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So uh, going a little bit back on August 3rd, 2019, um, what you told me at the beginning of this interview that you felt that you were giving a lot of lessons, right? And that you had that uh, psychology background and construction and all of that. And um, what have you learned since knowing that you had already so much knowledge in you what have you learned since august 3rd so one of the things that that i've learned is that we need to get people to sit down together and determine how we did things how we could do them better what did we learn how can we move forward in, in a better way um but you know one of the things when i was driving one day and i heard a sheriff call me uh, I believe it was Pete Ferroni, the president of the um, of the Sheriff's Union, says, hey, something's happening in Midland. That was 30 days afterwards. I didn't know how much I had inside of me that I was dealing with. I was bubbling with stuff that I didn't even, I wasn't even aware. And it says I had, I had stopped journaling because you, you, it was too much processing. Wow, my God, I didn't realize I had so much. I had to pull to the side of the road and just... I got emotional to think that 30 days later something else was happening and that we weren't even ready or prepared to help that community. And so here we are, we've experienced it 30 days later, and we're already being asked. Not in my life would I have thought that 30 days later, I was thinking, man, we've got about a year. I'll learn, and then one day something happens, and I'm going to be very valuable to somebody else because we've learned from this. And boom, here we are, 30 days, got flat-footed, they would never help, I never was able to help them. I think I sent one text uh, wishing them well, and then I, I was available, and that was it. Actually, just being, the fact that you just, what, what you just said, made me think that maybe at that time you weren't ready because you were still processing mm -hmm. and that's that's okay too yeah. um in our in one of the last episodes we did with emergence health network and our guest celeste nevarez um shared with us that it's it's okay if you're still processing till this day like i mean the one-year mark can revoke feelings and it's okay if we're still processing it's okay um now judge i want to ask my concluding questions um and first i'll ask this we are the el paso united family resiliency center and when uh, i started my role here i started to ask myself what is resiliency what is resiliency to me and um Every time I come into work, I I just reflect on that. So I would like to ask that to you. What is resiliency to you? Resilience to me, Mariana, is the ability to hold off something so that you can process it properly. And as that we're not afraid to deal with it. So we're resilient in the fact that we can embrace it. But if you don't, if you push it away 
and it, we're not resilient and it, it, it sort of knocks you down and you just can't seem to. And so what we're asking people is to be okay to start accepting what happened and what does it mean to you. But then we show the resiliency that it's not going to knock us down, that you have all the hope and, and, and confidence in yourself and your abilities. And, and in, like in my case, I have confidence that God's going to lead me in the, in the right direction and that I'm going to be able to do the things that I need to do and that I have what it takes. And I look back and I realize how many things I've survived. And all of us, we can all think, wow, my goodness, whether it's a divorce or whether uh, someone died, whether we, all these things that happen uh, are, are, are helping us to be stronger, not weaker. You know how they say if it doesn't kill us, it makes us stronger. And so resilience to me is having that sense that you will be able to accomplish. And every single person in our community can look back at things that they've accomplished that were horrific, difficult, trying, and we, we came through them. Unfortunately, sometimes people forget that and they feel overwhelmed and they feel they're not going to be able to do that. If they only look back and saw, well, you know, I was able to do this and this happened to me in my life and this went wrong, but look at where I'm at now and I survived those things. And so this resiliency comes from recognition and awareness of our capabilities to deal with things as, as, as well as we, we should. You know, and when you can and what moment you can do that. And that's individual. You know, we talk a lot about individuality. And sometimes we want to do it like somebody else. You know, when, when I heard the Midland shooting, you know, I, I could have said, oh, my God, I'm the county judge. And uh, I shouldn't be overwhelmed. And uh, I said, no, I'm my Ricardo Samaniego. <laughs> I, I, I can deal with emotions really deeply, and I'm not afraid of them. And so I'm going to do that. So I just parked on the side, and then I allowed myself to feel everything because I knew that that's how I deal with it. I, I allow it to hit me, and then I deal with it. Some people, it's a little bit at a time. So everybody's different, but. Understanding, you said that uh, the most important relationship we'll ever have is with ourselves. We should be our best friend. You know, we should be that person that we counsel. We should be our best mentors. We should be everything to ourselves so that we could be good to others and be capable of others. And so knowing who you are, you know, I, I use a lot of because I like dichos in Spanish, but this one is more, you know, know thyself. Know thyself, you know. And so once you know who you are and how you do things, you get a sense of, of power that you've given yourself to know I can go through this. It's going to be difficult, painful, and so whatever. But you know what? I'm going to learn from this. We, we're going to heal individually, and then we're going to heal as a community. And there's two separate things. I'm going to, I might be behind the community, and then I feel better about where I'm at in healing as a community, but I might be a little behind, or I might feel very good for a mat as, as, as because of my background, but maybe the community, I'm still not there in, in part of the healing process as a community. Going a little bit back to what you said, giving yourself the permission to feel. I love that. 
I love that that you pull your pull pull your card to the side and just let that emotion because sometimes we don't have a good relationship with our emotions and it's so natural and um so yeah giving yourself the permission to feel and now Connie Judge I want to ask my last question I'm sorry that our time is almost up <laughs> I've been enjoying this conversation a lot um What would you say to those people who were deeply impacted by August 3rd? What's your message? I, I think the most important one is that what I've seen is that people that are heavily impacted have more of an opportunity to come out stronger because they felt it, they sensed it, they're living with it. And if they can make sense of what happened, it makes us better people you do have that opportunity to come out stronger. You need to be nurture yourself, obviously. You've got to find people around you that will nurture you as well. You do have to stay away from people that might not be nurturing you, that are affecting you in a negative way. It's an opportunity to step back. And, I, you know, I, I use the repurposing a lot because you repurpose yourself. Because whatever happened at that moment has been sort of thrown aside. You know, you're now in different emotions, different feelings, different. So now you have to recreate yourself and say, what, what is it that I'm going to come out of? And when you come out stronger, and if you realize that that's helping your spiritual self, it's helping your mental health to make every effort that this does not knock you down, but it makes you stronger. It's very difficult for people to understand that you can come out stronger. I don't want to simplify it in any way, like, okay, I'm going to become stronger. It's a very difficult journey, but it's a very rewarding journey to find out that when you go out there and you're making that effort, it's very rewarding because you're going to be in a situation to help others, either directly or by your role modeling. Those that have been highly impacted We care a lot for you. We, we're a community that's rallying around you. And, and we want you to be successful. We want you to come out better. We, we don't want anybody, you know, we keep saying we don't want to be defined by the situation. We do want to be defined by the fact that we came out better and that we're ready to do some better things. Thank you so much for your message. And thank you so much for your time, Connie Judge. I really enjoyed our time. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this content serves you and your loved ones as well. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do not forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at El Paso United FRC to learn more about our commitment to the community's long-term recovery. Please join us on the next episode.